Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Crisis. Crisis has a way of unmasking who you really are. An example of this is Abraham Lincoln, who kept our country together in a time when our country could have very easily fallen apart. We were in this civil war, it could have just completely exploded, or probably a better way to say it is imploded on itself, but it, it, it didn't happen that way because Abraham Lincoln in great crisis was able to shepherd this country. Winston Churchill is another who, who he was the prime minister of Great Britain from 1940 to 1945 when the blitz was on in London and bombs are falling from the Germans and everything around them is seemingly going up in smoke. It was his voice that kept that nation alive. It was his encouragement, his resolve, his courage that they heard on the radio that reminded them again that that they had a hope. And it was Franklin Roosevelt, who was president of the United States from 1933 to 1945, who shepherded this country through the Great Depression and then later uh, helped us to get through World War II. These are men that stepped up and were able to do things in crisis. Crisis or hard circumstances reveals who we really are. It's true of leaders, it's true of each of us, the circumstances of our lives, the hard stuff that we face, that is when we find out who we really are. Everybody is in a good mood, all of, everything's going downhill. Everybody's healthy, we've all got enough money, things, things are great, then it's easy to navigate life, right? It's easy to put that smile on your face, and it's easy to look at your neighbor and say, oh, cheer up, it's not that bad, but when things are bad for you, when there isn't money, when there isn't health, when things aren't so easy, that's when you find out who you are on the inside. As we will see today in the life of Hezekiah, all you have to do is, is the right series of things. All you have to have is the right series of things for everybody to find out who you really are on the inside. Today, as we look at King Hezekiah, we are going to see the attributes of a great leader. To begin, I need to give you a bit of a history lesson, kind of a political history lesson. These maps will help us to identify why Hezekiah is in a crisis to begin with. I'm going to show you some maps. This is the first one. You're going to see there, the first part of that is, I want you to see the box, the little blue box, which is Israel. And remember that Israel is really two kingdoms. It's the northern part was the kingdom of Israel. The southern part was the kingdom of Judah. And I've told you in this series that all of the good kings came out of Judah. There were no what they would refer to as good kings that came out of the northern kingdom of Israel as it had gone through its own civil war, and there were two of them. But you see Israel in that blue box, and to the east you see um, Assyria and Babylon, Babylon, which is a part of the Mesopotamian kingdom or dynasty, and you can see it's fairly good size off in the east, and then you see that black circle, that's Egypt, and it's a fairly good place too good size. Most of the Old Testament history that we uh, see unfold can basically will unfold on the map before you. And so you have these two ancient superpowers in this world, Mesopotamia and Egypt, and these two superpowers are enormous. 
and they are great rivals. Now, once in a while, in good times, they would trade back and forth with each other, but most of the time, those two big superpowers did not get along and did not like each other. Uh, the next map, um, when you read the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham is always contending with the Egyptians all the time. It's because in this particular period of time, during Abraham and the patriarchs, Egypt has just gotten massive. It's just it's it's really broadened its kingdom, and so that you can see that black circle encompasses Israel. And then when we take a look at the next map, the reason that Saul and David and King Solomon could grow the the nation of Israel the way they did it was a it was a time of of prosperity for them basically because Assyria and Babylon had receded that Mesopotamian kingdom had receded and kind of shrunk down as had the Egyptian kingdom and so it made it possible for Israel to enjoy uh, you know a bit of a blessing and to flourish a little bit because the bigger superpowers around it weren't there to bother them and so you kind of had this golden era for Israel But when you come to the period of Hezekiah, you get a map that looked like this. Here you see the Mesopotamian kingdom, uh, particularly Assyria has expanded, that big red circle, and you also see that the circle of Egypt is expanded, and what you find is that these two kingdoms basically intersect, and they intersect right over that little blue box, which is Israel. Israel was a tiny nation. And when you compare Assyria to Israel, it's kind of like comparing Russia to Switzerland now. I mean, the comparison just almost can't be made. There's just no comparing the two. And where do you suppose the Assyrians are planning to go as they begin their conquest? They are going to head straight for Egypt. And the Egyptians know that the Assyrians are coming, and they have fortresses all up along the Mediterranean coast. And so what you have is this this intersection of circles where they, these two are going to begin to collide. You can see that where they overlap. Consequently, Israel is right in the crosshairs of this incredible fight that's going to take place between the two, the Egyptians and the Assyrians, which leads us to see a map that looks like this. And so the Assyrians are pressing down from the north, the Egyptians are coming up from the south, and you see Jerusalem is that little blue dot, and everything else is either belongs to the Egyptians or it now is going to belong to the Assyrians and Hezekiah would look at this map and he would say yep that's my life that is my life the Assyrians were very proud of this conquest this particular one we're looking at today they wrote about it in the Assyrian archives we have been able to discover those in Mosul Iraq which was one of the Old Testament cities when you read about the city of Nineveh that is Mosul modern-day Mosul. And we, we have these writings archived in museums where the Assyrians boasted that we took out 46 walled fortress cities in, in Israel. They boasted about it. They wrote about it. It's a, it's a part of their history. It was a big deal to them. And, and as they did what we're going to talk about today, it, got, it, got, it went down into the annals of history. On this map, you will notice that Jerusalem is a, a little blue dot there, and that's where Hezekiah is, And he is being surrounded by all this stuff that's unfolding around him. Just south of the blue dot of Jerusalem, you see a red dot, which is the city of Lachish. 
the Assyrians want Lachish. For them, Jerusalem was a bit of a nuisance, an irritation. They weren't so much concerned about Jerusalem, but Lachish was a, was a key city for them because from there, they would be able to launch uh, uh, attacks and launch offensives and be able to go at the Egyptians in a more strategic way. So Lachish was really important to them. So what we find is that Hezekiah is walled up in Jerusalem, surrounded by the largest army that the world has ever seen, and he's having communications with the people in Lachish. I want to illustrate for you a little bit of the size of the Assyrian world and the Assyrian army. This is a picture of the gate at Nineveh. Mosul, Iraq is the Old Testament city of Nineveh, and that was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. They have done huge archaeological work there, and archaeologists have been able to carefully reconstruct this gate. This was one of the main gates. I've got another picture for you to see here. Same gate, just it's a, isn't that a magnificent uh, structure? But you cannot visit those today. You cannot go see that today because ISIS blew this up. This is gone. But in the British Museum in London, you can see some of the things from Nineveh and other places surrounding Iraq. One of the things that's been discovered and removed out of Iraq are the many reliefs that show some of the things of the Assyrian conquest. This comes from a period uh, that we're talking about today. This is about 2,700 years old, and this shows archers in the depiction of the Assyrian siege of the Middle East. Here's another one. This is a relief showing slaves coming from um, Israelite cities and they are being taken off to Assyria where they will be sold as slaves. Here's another one. Basically they're saying this is the fruit of our conquest. We've attacked these walled cities of Israel and now we're taking the slaves out. And then this last one shows the king of Assyria receiving conquered kings from around the empires that they have now taken captive and they're bringing those back in and they will be, uh, some of them killed, some of them enslaved. So that's the scene this is a period of political catastrophe, and Hezekiah is in crisis. Everything is falling apart around him as the Assyrians are marching down from the north, and they invade his cities, and they, they invade his region of the country, and the Egyptians are coming up from the south, and you know all the swords have been sharpened, and all the weapons of war have been prepared, and he is sitting in Jerusalem wondering how in the world is he going to survive. Hezekiah was the 14th king of Israel. He lived through the entire disaster, and he ruled for 29 years. And I would expect that in his position, he felt pretty powerless. He didn't have the resources to go against cities of this size. He did not have the resources to fight armies that were going to be this big. There was no way he had what it took to fight an army like that. So at age 25, when he comes, first comes to rule, King Hezekiah decides that he is going to bring Israel back to right worship. If you have your Bible, turn to 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. 2 Kings 18, verse 1. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father had done. So those are the 
the magic words. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's what distinguishes him as one of the good kings. And again, all of those came out of the region of Judah. Uh, Verse 4, he removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. Does that sound familiar? Two weeks ago, we looked at King Asa. Those were the exact words that were said about him. He removed the high places, he smashed the sacred stones, and he cut down the the Asherah poles. He He is purifying his kingdom of any pagan worship. He tore down the altars, he tore down the symbols and the the, the temples of the pagan gods, and those temples were everywhere. And he went throughout his city to make sure that they were, that his, that, or he went throughout his country to make sure that his country was cleansed of all that stuff. Verse 4, the second part. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. So a little background there. There was a time in, Israel, in the Israelite history where they had been very disobedient. Because of that disobedience, uh, they, God had allowed them to be bitten by poisonous snakes and they were dying. And it was because of their disobedience. And so, you know, God and Moses worked this thing out where Moses would fashion the snake, put it on a pole and raise it to, in the air. And, and when these people got bitten, they were to look at the snake and they would be saved. And it was basically God just trying to show them his power and his watch care over them. Well, apparently they saved that snake and now instead of it being a symbol of the faithfulness of God and how he took care of them, it has become something that they worship. And Hezekiah takes this sacred object from Israel's history and he breaks it because they are now worshiping it. We come to verse 5. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. So he was a great king. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. So you got to get it. Hezekiah is like a rock star king. This guy really is a very, very good king, but he is in crisis. And if you were going to write something about Hezekiah on his tombstone, you would probably write what we're going to read next, because this is what he's best known for. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. That's what he's known for. He stood up to this massive Assyrian army, and he would not back down. So the first thing he does is he purifies all the pagan worship out of the country. Then Hezekiah was 28 years old, and that's when Assyria begins to attack the Middle East. And at the beginning, they start in the north, and they start to work their way down Hezekiah begins to see the devastation coming. Verse 9, in King Hezekiah's fourth year, which was the seventh year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel. So you've got a king in Israel. Remember, uh, there's two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom, southern kingdom. So we're talking about the the northern king, Hosea, and then Hezekiah is down in in the southern kingdom, which is Judah. Elah, king of Israel, this is the king's name of Assyria now, Shalomaneser, king of Assyria, marched against Samaria and laid siege to it. So Samaria is in the northern kingdom, which was, would be Israel. And Assyria comes rolling in, and they take over the city of Samaria. Uh, Samaria. Samaria was captured in Hezekiah's sixth year, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel. So Hezekiah, the king of, of, of Judah in the south, 
The kingdoms in the, in the north is under siege. Cities are under siege. And when they laid siege to a city, what that means is they would basically surround it, cut off all the resources, and starve everybody in the city. Nothing got in, nothing got out. Eventually it just shrivels up and dies, and, and it, it becomes very easy for them to go in and take it over. And Hezekiah is a good king, and he sees these northern refugees that are streaming out of north, the north, out of Israel, and they're coming to his city, and he's trying to figure out, because he knows that they're not all going to fit in, he can't make them all fit in, so what does he do? He rebuilds a portion of the city wall to make room for these refugees to be able to come in and find shelter. He takes care of these refugees, and, and he starts to look at all this, and he comes to understand if Samaria can be laid siege to and burned to the ground, then they can do the same thing to Jerusalem. That could be our fate as well. We have an explanation as to why Samaria fell from the scriptures. 2 Kings 18, verse 12, this, king ha this happened because they had not obeyed the Lord their God, but had violated his covenant, all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened to the commands nor carried them out. Now, you know, we talk a lot about grace around here and a lot about mercy, and I'm always going to do that. I'm big, big grace, love grace, grace, awesome grace. But we are called to be obedient. We are called to carry out the commands. We are called to know what they are. So the message that Hezekiah gets from the entire Samaritan conquest is that the loss of righteousness leads to a loss of blessing. You need to hear that and you need to know that. A loss of righteousness leads to a loss of blessing. Okay, We don't like hearing that kind of stuff, but that's a part of this. Samaria no longer believed in the covenant of God, and therefore they have lost all of the blessing. Three years later, at age 30, Samaria falls after this siege has been laid to the city. They fall to the Assyrians. Samaria had been a magnificent city. And here's Hezekiah, just miles to the south, and he watches this magnificent city go up in flames. After Samaria falls, the Assyrians actually retreat because there's some political unrest, there's some internal political stuff that's going on and so it necessitates that the Assyrian army goes back to Nineveh and Hezekiah thinks to himself great crisis over I don't have to worry about anything no no 10 years later Assyria comes back just as strong and now Hezekiah at age 39 watches this huge Assyrian army amass at his doorstep I take you now to 2 Kings 18, verse 13. In the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign, and you'll notice now that Assyria is going to have a new king. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Okay, so now they've moved into Hezekiah's territory, and now they're starting to take over all these cities that are inhabited by Israelites. So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish. I have done wrong. Withdraw from me, and I will pay whatever you demand of me. The king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Okay, let me go back, and, and let's look at this map again. This is what Hezekiah's world would have looked like during this time. He is in Jerusalem. 46 walled, um, fortified cities have fallen to the Assyrians 
all of them were full of Israelites, okay? These are his people, and now they have fallen into, Israel, into uh, Assyrian hands. The Assyrian king Sennacherib is sitting in Lachish and has sent some couriers up to Jerusalem, and they're basically saying, do you want to live? If you want to live, give us all your money, and we'll see how that goes. That sounds like a great promise, doesn't it? If you want to live, give us all your money, and we'll see. You can almost see the handwriting on the wall, right? Hezekiah delivers 19,000 pounds of silver, and he delivers 2,000 pounds of gold to the Assyrians, and it would be a gamble that Hezekiah would lose because as soon as Sennacherib had the cash in hand, he sends messengers from Lachish to Hezekiah to basically say, thanks for the money, we're going to maul you anyway. And these couriers that are sent up from Lachish begin to talk smack they're, they're outside the city walls of Jerusalem, and Hezekiah's looking down on all this, and these, this, these couriers and somewhat of an army around, and they start talking trash to Hezekiah. They're threatening him. They're, they're just relentless in the words that they're using toward Hezekiah. 2 Kings 18, verse 32, the, second, the third part. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what these couriers are saying. For he is misleading you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath or Arpad? Where are the gods of Sevarphain, Henna, Iva? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of the, these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? They're scoffing. Hezekiah, do you really think your God can stack up to my army? Come on, man, get a life. That's not going to happen, and you know it's not going to happen. Hezekiah is standing on the walls of Jerusalem, looking down on the largest army the world has ever seen assembled. He knows how violent they are. He knows how disgusting they are. He knows that they will destroy the city. He knows that they will kill most of the people, and the people that they do not kill, they're going to drag off to be slaves to the Assyrians. And he's listening to this trash talk, and he has to decide what to do. And it is here that we find out what kind of man Hezekiah is. It is here that we begin to fashion a checklist of attributes. What kind of leader do you want? When the Assyrians are bearing down on your city and, and, and they're ready to waltz in and take over everything, what kind of leader do you want? And it is here that we're going to see the attributes of leadership. The first thing Hezekiah does as he's looking down on this trash-talking army is Hezekiah refuses to talk to the enemy. No doubt, Hezekiah had men around him, testosterone-filled men, that wanted to show off their muscles and show off how strong they were, and they were probably in Hezekiah's ear saying, you can't let him get away with talking to us like that. We've got weapons, we've got men, come on, let's go at these guys, come on. You gonna let them talk about our God like that? Hezekiah knows that this is not a negotiation. He, he knows, don't talk to the enemies, don't engage in discourse, so he gives a command not one word see when your enemy comes against you self-control is an important part of leadership 
The second thing that King Hezekiah does, he fortifies the city of Jerusalem. He builds new walls for the city, strengthens old walls. Um, he does everything that he can do to make Jerusalem as defendable as possible. In every ancient city, as in, in every city that's ever really been established, you really don't have civilizations and you really don't have cities unless you have water. Anywhere you're going to find a large gathering of people. The reason Terre Haute is here is because it's on a waterfront. That's how we got started, right? They, they decided, hey, this is a great place. This little valley, We've got water source. We'll just, we'll have a little gathering here. That's what happens. There's got to be water in order for people to make it. So in all these ancient cities where you'd find a gathering of people, you would also find a water source. Well, that's, that's how Jerusalem got started. They found something called the Gihon Spring, and Jerusalem is built next to the Gihon Spring. Here's the problem. If the Assyrians are able to discover the Gihon Spring, they will do one of two things. They will either poison the well or they will completely destroy the well. The well dries up or goes away. The people can't get water and it's just a matter of time before the city falls. So Hezekiah fortifies Jerusalem. He builds walls around the Gihon Spring. He disguises it and he builds a tunnel underneath the city of Jerusalem so the water can flow back into the city so people can get to the water without having to risk their life. And it's actually something that you can go to Jerusalem and see today. You can see the tunnel, they call the Tunnel of Hezekiah. Hezekiah says to the men of Jerusalem, start building weapons, we're going to fight. Even if it's our last fight, we're going to fight. Which brings us to the third thing that Hezekiah does. Hezekiah fortifies the hearts of his people. This is something that great leaders do. No negativity, no egocentric speeches. Instead, he offers healthy words of encouragement. Second Chronicles 13, uh, I'm sorry, Second Chronicles 32, verse 6. Chronicles tells the same story as Second Kings. It just does it in a little different style. Verse 6, he appointed military officers over the people and assembled them before him in the square at the city gate and encouraged them with these words. This is Hezekiah talking. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there is a greater power within, with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And it says the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, said hezekiah fortifies his people and then the fourth thing hezekiah does he goes to the temple and he prays and he confesses his sin and he puts on ashes and sackcloth which was a sign of humility and repentance so you ask yourself if i'm hezekiah what what would my temptation be what what, what would be something that would lure me what what would i have to guard against He's got this huge Assyrian army bearing down on him from the north, but in the south, he has access to an army that would be a good alliance for him in the Egyptians. And he's thinking to himself, what if I made a deal with the Egyptians? What if I flew the Egyptian flag over the city of Jerusalem? Then they would come in and they would help us fight this. The Assyrians knew that Hezekiah was flirting a little bit with the Egyptians. And so Hezekiah goes to the temple and he confesses, Lord, I should not be trusting in the Egyptians. I should be trusting in you. Which leads me to a question that I would ask of each of us. What is it in our world 
that we are tempted to lean on and lean into instead of God? What, what is it in your prayer that you would say, God, I shouldn't be trusting in this. I should be trusting in you. Because we've all probably got something. For some of us, it's money. God, I'm, I'm not, I'm, if I'm totally honest, I'm really not trusting in you. I'm trusting in this money. Or I'm trusting in my health. Or I'm trusting in my job. Or I'm trusting in my spouse. Or I'm trusting in my best friend. Or I'm trusting in this plot of ground or this house or whatever. There's any number of things that can take the place of God in our life where we would have to put on sackcloth and ashes and say, God, I should not be trusting in that. And for Hezekiah, it was the Egyptians. I should be trusting in you. Hezekiah humbles himself before God. He knows that he has a fortified city. He also knows that ultimately God is going to be the one that defends him, not the city. Repentance and humility are the kind of things you want in a leader. Next thing Hezekiah does, he calls in consultants. I would expect that Hezekiah had at his disposal any number of great generals, any number of great lawyers and philosophers, uh, physicians, counselors. In a crisis, everybody has an opinion and everybody is eager to tell you what to do, but Hezekiah doesn't listen to any of that. Instead, he clears his office and he says, bring me Isaiah the prophet. And it's no doubt, somebody came to him and said, but Hezekiah, we've got these great generals over here. (laughs) I mean, don't waste this resource. We've got these philosophers over here, we've got these You know, these guys that maybe can forecast what's going to happen, maybe you should sit down and talk to them. Hezekiah says, no, bring me Isaiah the prophet. Hezekiah is bringing around him people who truly knew God's will. I can learn an awful lot about you by watching who you lean into during a crisis. Who do you bring around you when things are not going well? That will give you away. That will tell me who you really are. So apparently the couriers have decided, these, these Assyrian couriers that are outside the city talking smack to Hezekiah, and they're yelling all this trash up to him, they, they got tired of talking, so they wrote it out, okay? They wrote it out on a scroll type thing, and uh, it basically, when, they, when Hezekiah gets it delivered to him, it basically says, dear Hezekiah, you are toast, right? Like, <laughs> we are coming for you. I don't know what, I don't know how you talk smack in Assyrian, but, you know, you are bagel. I don't know what, what, I don't know. Hezekiah receives this document. Probably it had been shot over the wall by an arrow. They had affixed it to an arrow and just shot it over the wall so that the king could, could read it. One Assyrian said, it was written out, we have you caged up like a little bird. So Hezekiah takes this scroll And he goes into the temple and he opens the scroll and he lays it out on the altar before God and he says, Lord, it's not just me that's threatened here, it's your honor too. And the last thing that Hezekiah does, Hezekiah gives the problem to God, which is what you need to do. What is your problem? What is that thing that you're carrying around with you and it's so heavy and you pray about it all the time and all the time and what am I going to do? And man, this is heavy. And God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And God's saying, would you just put it down? Would you just put it down? Brett, just put it down. I've gotten into this habit in my prayer time where I do this like symbolic thing 
Um, I'll take things that I'm worrying about, or I'm, I'll take things that I do this with you when you ask me to pray for you, and I, I you know, I remember it, and I go try to write it in, on a list in my office, and I get that list out once in a while, and I'll carry it around in my head. You guys will come to my mind. I'll be praying about different things, and you know, I know this one's going to the doctor, and this one's got a surgery, and this one's mom just died, and um, you know, this one got a bad health report, and um, this one's money stuff, and I got my own stuff going on. And I just take all that stuff, and what I've gotten in the habit of doing is, is just kind of like treating them like flowers, like you just collect these flowers, this bundle of flowers, all these problems. They're not good-smelling flowers. They're not pretty flowers. They're ugly, nasty flowers. And, and I, just in my prayer time, I, I just symbolically will get kind of down and, and lay those down at the feet of Jesus and say, you know what, I'm not, I, this, I'm not, you don't want me carrying this stuff. I'm not going to carry this anymore. Because this isn't how you designed me to operate. This isn't what you want from me. This is all the stuff that I'm worried about. You tell me in the Bible I'm not supposed to worry. So God, I'm going to put these at your feet. I'm just going to back away. I'm giving this stuff to you because you're bigger than me. I can't, I can't fix her heart. I, I, I don't have the money to give to them to make things better for them. I can't find a house for her. So God... And, and my own stuff too. I got. I'm scared. I'm. I'm worried. I'm. You know. What about mom? What about this, that, or the other? What? I mean. I'm just gonna put it down and and y- y- I can't carry this anymore. And then what I'm tempted to do, and you probably do this too, is. But I'm gonna pick that one back up because I'm gonna worry about that. Let me get that one too because that one's pretty important. I grab that one too. And before I know it, I've gathered them all back up again. So this is just this constant thing where I'm just kind of laying these things down before God and saying, God, I need you to take care of these because I'm not strong enough. I, I can't do it. I can't do it. God, I need you. Here's the prayer. Listen to this prayer that Hezekiah prays in 2 Kings. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the word Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. So God, here's the problem I'm facing is this king. Listen to the word that Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. What a prayer. What a prayer. Hezekiah lays at God's feet this crisis and he says, Lord, your honor is on the line and I am trusting you to act in this situation. There's nothing else I can do. And God acts. What happens next is the worst nightmare for any general. Sennacherib wakes up the next morning and over 180,000 of his men are dead. They have died in the night, and Sennacherib very wisely decides, maybe it's time for me to go back to Assyria and reassess the situation. Isaiah the prophet had prophesied when he gets back to Assyria, when he gets back to Nineveh, his two sons are going to kill him. That's exactly what happens. Sennacherib goes back to Nineveh, and his two sons murder him. 
And Hezekiah looks around and he says, we've been saved. Hezekiah was known as such a wise king that you can actually read Proverbs in our book of Proverbs in the Bible that were written by Hezekiah. He was a very smart guy, very wise, but Hezekiah was not Jesus and he was not perfect. What you find in the Bible and what you find throughout history and what you find even in modern day is even the best leaders we have have feet made of clay. I remember I wrote a note to my pastor when I was in Bible college. Um, I just I, I wrote a note to him and just basically expressed to him how much I looked up to him, because I do. I highly respect this man, and I, I he's like a father to me. And I wrote this note, you know, that basically said, "You're like my spiritual father. I look up to you. I count on you. I I, I think you're amazing." And he, I've got, still got the letter he wrote back, and in it, it he wrote the words. Never forget that my feet are made of clay. And that was a lesson for me at a very early age, and I've never forgotten it, and you just see it played out over and over and over. I don't care who you're putting your faith in. I don't care who you're putting your trust in on an earthly level. If they're a leader, they eventually are going to let you down. Follow me long enough, I'm going to let you down. My feet are made of clay. Every leader you know, every leader you look up to, every leader you think, man, wow, look at him. Feet made of clay. Not perfect. We'll, we'll disappoint you at some point. That's just life, okay? Hezekiah, as great a king as he was, was not immune to letting people down. In fact, the Assyrians left. The Babylonians, who hated the Assyrians even more than the Egyptians did, started a delegation. They sent a delegation to Jerusalem. They wanted to make a deal with Hezekiah. Remember, in the, in the Mesopotamian kingdom, there was the Assyrians to the north, Babylonians to the south. Babylonians, they hate the Assyrians too, so they come to the Israelites and Hezekiah, and they say, hey, let's make a deal, and let's, you know, let's kind of team up together. And then Hezekiah does a really stupid thing. He says, yeah, let's do that. He opens the doors to the treasury so that the people, the, the leaders from Babylon, can see all the money they've got. And Isaiah sees that, and he goes, are you stupid? Have you lost your mind? What are you doing? That's not smart. Another place where Hezekiah didn't do so well is with his kids. You know, he didn't do a great job of, of passing his faith down to his kids. He will have a son named Manasseh who will grow up and be a king. He's one of the worst kings that, that Judah ever saw. So what is the takeaway from the story of Hezekiah? I think there's three takeaways. Number one, crisis is an opportunity to renew your love for God. Crisis is an opportunity to renew your love for God. Some people let hardship drive them away from God. Hardship should drive you into the arms of God. That's an opportunity for you to draw close to God. Recommit yourself to God's word. Number two, crisis is an opportunity to purify your house. Hezekiah knew that to create a rich relationship with God, he would need to remove all sin from his life and the appearance of all sin from his life and from his kingdom. He knew that that was really important. Can't have that stuff. So he removed all the statues, all the temples, all the pagan gods. In crisis, renew your holiness to God. And I'm just going to tell you that's probably going to look in some form like obedience. It's going to mean obedience. That's, a lot of times that's, that's what holiness comes down to is obedience. Number three, crisis is an opportunity to grow in wisdom. The people we lean into in times of crisis will either enrich us or they will tear us down. 
Who are you leaning into in crisis? Are you leaning into people that encourage you to do ungodly things? Or are you leaning into people who are calling you to a higher standard, calling you to something better, calling you to behave the right way, calling you to do the things of God? Who you lean into in the middle of a crisis will determine in large part how you come out of the crisis. Here's the truth. You and I will meet our own Assyrian army, okay? Probably more than once. We're going to stand on the, t- on the city wall and we're going to look out and we're going to see an army that looks insurmountable and unconquerable and we're going to think to ourselves, how in the world, how in the world am I supposed to go against that? God, that is too big for me. And God is there saying, exactly, exactly. The question that we've got to be ready to answer when we look out on the huge Assyrian army of our life, and there will be more than one, the question we've got to answer is, who are we ultimately going to lean into and who are we going to trust when the enemy is at the gate? Draw closer to God. Purify your house. And grow in wisdom. Let's pray together. God, this morning, I don't know a lot, but I know one thing for sure. We will all face our own Assyrian armies. And they're big. They're imposing. They're scary. They tempt us to disbelief. They cause us to want to do things that aren't healthy, aren't good. And Father, if we're not facing an Assyrian army today, we eventually will, but some of us are facing them today. And so, Lord, I just want to offer a prayer on behalf of all of us as we have very humbly bowed our heads this morning, placed ourselves before you. We want to start by telling you, you're our God and we are your people. Father, for some of the people that are in this room right now, the enemy is at the door. And that enemy might take on a million different faces, but it's scary. And if we're totally honest, it drags us away from you. And so God, as we look out over the vast army, I pray that we would not see an army, but we would look just a little bit higher and we would see you and we would know that there is nothing bigger than you. There is no army greater than your power. And there is nothing greater in this world than what is within us who are believers in Jesus because we have the Holy Spirit. And we have within us the power that raised Christ from the dead. And so, Father, for the ones that are facing the army this morning and they're tempted to disbelief, I pray that you would meet them in this place and you would draw them to you, that they would purify their house, that they would draw close to you, and that they would grow in wisdom. So, Father, just in the silence this morning, We bow to you.
Hear our prayer, Lord. It's in Jesus' name.